0: We give you glory and honor, in your precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing this morning? Uh, We're going to wait an hour for the latecomers. that was rough. It was rough this morning, I'll tell you. That was rough. Um, We're looking at this time of year... um, I know it's a weird thing, but we're looking at suffering. We're looking at the season of Lent, which is a time where we can uniquely reflect on what Christ has done on our behalf. And he has done so much more than give us wonderful parables and stories and miracles and teaching. His life exampled not only love and justice and truth and righteousness, but his life exampled to us sacrifice. And it's not just an example. It is an actual, real life and death offering that he gave on our behalf. This past year, year or so, uh, I had a a really good friend who was my best man at my wedding pass away. And that was shocking, that was hard, hard to deal with, that was really close to home. I think one of the first few deaths that uh, I've had in the last ten years that have really struck me. And uh, a month or two ago, someone that I had been at seminary with passed away. And uh, I saw his journey the last several months of his life, mainly through his wife, because he wasn't able to to even type uh, at that point. Uh, And his wife said something rather interesting a couple weeks ago. This is about a month after Philip died. And uh, his wife said that people intend... To be kind and generous and sympathetic when someone close to them passes away. And she kept hearing time and time again from people. They were Christian. He was a church planner in Mississippi. A godly man, a godly family. Lots of fruit in their life. She said, everyone would say to me, he's far better off. Everything is Okay. In time, it's going to be fine. And as I was reading this, I said, oh, I've said that to a lot of people. i probably said it to some of you. And she said, that is only a half-truth. And she said, death is simply horrible. It is an enemy. Not something to happily embrace, but something that is contrary to our very nature as human beings. And we have lived far too long, no puns intended, lived far too long with death being part of our expectations. And that got me thinking. Our greatest enemy is death Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15 the last enemy that we have to face is death and as individuals I don't think we have a lot of enemies there's some bad people in the world when I was growing up in the 80s there was only one enemy America ever was concerned about right who was that enemy Russia well technically to be correct the Soviet Union, and that was done away with. But I haven't faced many enemies in life. People have been angry, you know, we haven't gotten along. But a lifelong enemy that wants me dead? I don't think we've faced many of those, except for death. Death is cruel. Death is unnatural. Thankfully, death is temporary. But it is immensely ripping at your soul. It rips at your joy. It rips at happiness. It rips at contentment. It rips at your confidence and faith and trust in God. It rips you. Apart when someone close to you is taken by it. You realize that we were not originally designed by God to die. We weren't originally designed by God to grow old and feeble and frail. We weren't originally designed by God to have our bodies deteriorate and fall apart. We were designed by God to live forever and ever and ever communing with Him in the Garden of Eden. That's how we were designed. In Genesis chapter 2, God describes for us the beauty of the garden. He tells us it was full of rivers and lush vegetation and trees that were appealing to the eye and good to eat. And he placed us in that garden and he said, there are four things that I need for you to do. He gave us work in the Garden of Eden. Work is not a result of the fall. Work is not a result of our sin. Work was designed by God to be part of our lives from the very beginning. But the first thing he gave us a responsibility to do was to garden was to be a gardener, was to tend to the vegetation, to take care of the trees, to take care of the flowers, to take care of the fruits and the vegetables that were growing. I don't know how that looked, but God said, you need to take care of it. You have dominion over it. I want you to rule it, and I want you to nurture it. The second thing he said is that in Genesis chapter 2, to Adam and Eve as they're in the garden, you need to become You need to learn to eat and love everything that I have provided for you in this garden. Every tree that looks good to eat, go ahead and eat it and enjoy the fruit of it. So eating. The third thing that he gave Adam and Eve to do was to be a zoologist. They brought, God brought the animals before Adam and he classified them. Cattles. Birds, fish, lizards, whatever it might be. He classified them and named them. He was given dominion over them and said, you take care of not just the garden as a gardener, but you take care of the animals as a zoologist. You're in charge of classifying them, and I give you dominion over it. And the last thing he gave Adam and Eve was companionship. He said, the two of you need to be together you leave your father and mother you leave your family and you cleave to your spouse you have that partnership you have that companionship that is normal part of human life but he gave them in all of that instruction one do not everything else was positive do this do this do this do this do this be a gardener be a foodie be a zoologist and have companionship but there's one thing he said Don't do it. One law he gave them. He said, there's this tree over here called the tree of knowledge. Knowledge of good and evil. I don't know what it looked like, but it was there. And it was appealing. It looked good. But God said, this tree, if you eat it, in that day that you eat it, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to die. Adam and Eve had no concept. What does it mean? Die. They've never experienced death. They never had anyone that they were close to that died. They never died. They never saw death. Wow, but that tree looked good. What a huge temptation it was. But God said, don't eat of it. Because when you eat of it in that day, you will surely die. Had they not eaten of that tree, wow, many books and theological papers have been written on that topic. What would have happened if they had not fallen? What would have happened if they obeyed that one do not? I don't know what life would be like. I think we would, uh, we wouldn't be here, for example, maybe Pueblo because it is beautiful, but we wouldn't be needing to hear the gospel. We wouldn't need to hear about forgiveness. We wouldn't have to read scripture because we would have this direct communication face to face with God every single day, every single moment. We would not be lonely. We would not grow old, tired, die, and feel feeble. We would not face uncertainties, fears, insecurities, loneliness. None of that would be part of our existence. And God originally designed us to live like that. Not to experience the pain, sorrows, frustrations, and agony of what we see, as everyday life. In Genesis chapter 3, God said, run with it. So they began to run with it, being a gardener, being a foodie, being a zoologist, and having companionship. They ran with it. And Genesis 3 tells us that through Satan, the father of lies, they led Adam and Eve into deception, He led them straight to that tree and they ate of it. Both of them willingly ate of it. And immediately were told that their eyes were opened and they recognized something. They recognized, first of all, that they were naked. They had never noticed that before. There was no need to notice it because sin had not entered into their mind about modesty and humility and embarrassment. That wasn't part of their existence. But now they notice, oh, we're this is wrong, this is weird when did this happen and then tragically they heard God walking in the garden and they became afraid for the first time and they hid themselves then they have that dialogue between God and themselves where God says what are you doing and the man says well (laughs) uh, it's her And she goes, it was the snake, it was the devil. And they all blame shifted. First lies, deception. And then God explains to Adam and Eve what it means when he says death. And he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, in the curse given to Adam and Eve, he says to Adam... By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Okay, so work's going to be hard. Once work was easy, now work is going to be hard. And you're going to work hard. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food. Until, oh, when is this going to end? All this work and toil. Until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Words that you hear at a funeral. Dust to dust. Ashes to ashes. That's funeral talk. That's talk of when someone dies. And when someone dies, their body begins at that very moment to decay. To fall apart. To stink. To look horrific. To be repulsive at that moment. I had a A good friend in Wisconsin who, uh, solid Christian, David is a great man of faith, and his father though was an unbeliever to the core, hated God, was an atheist, was uh, fought against God. But David and his mom were very strong Christians, and in the end his mom passed away, and it was just David and and his dad living together in their house. And uh, David's dad had built a very successful business, uh, a millionaire just extremely wealthy and really didn't have to do anything so stayed at home all day and drank, drank and drank and drank and would go through more than a case of vodka a week. Eventually he died and David was an only child, only family, no other family at all, no cousins, no aunts or uncles and it was David's responsibility to take care of all the funeral arrangements. Well, his dad had said, you know, I don't want anything Christian, I don't want anything, just bury me. And uh, David thought this would be a great opportunity for his father's friends to, uh, to share the gospel uh, because they had never heard it before and they would never hear it, uh, obviously, from his, his father who had just passed. And so David did something pretty unique. I'd never seen or heard of this before I wasn't there to witness this we were already moved out of the area Uh, but David tells us that he gave the funeral home explicit instructions not to prepare the body at all to leave it untouched no embalming no makeup no dressing him in his finest suit leave him as he was when he was found. Same clothes, pajamas, like he was. Don't comb his hair. Don't do a thing. David said that when people came in to the funeral home, they were immediately filled with confusion because it stank horribly. And David, of course, said leave it open casket four or five days had passed now i've seen lots of movies and tv shows so i kind of think i we all know what a, a four or five day old body may look like because hollywood does a, such a great job portraying that uh, david says it was nothing like the movies nothing he says yeah i mean some of the grotesqueness was there but a movie can't capture A dead, soulless body. The gospel was preached that day based on the fact that death is ugly. And if you want to avoid ugliness for eternity, you turn to Christ. That is a pretty strong visual and smelling example of how Bad death is. How unnatural it is. How we were not designed for it. We were not designed to die. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Dave's father was eventually cremated. And I remember being over at his house and he said... (laughs) Quite frankly, hey, you wanna see my dad? I said, whoa, uh, (laughs) no. And he brought out the little box. And I was struck with how tiny it was, how very little there was. And I was reminded that after you take a body and cremate it and break it down to its most bare elements, I remember reading a story where it was worth $1. ninety-seven in chemicals. $1.97. And I, I just thought how insignificant it felt. And it really was just ashes and dust. If you drop it, it'd just be scattered and gone. God didn't design us. To have that type of meaningless, dust-filled end. It all happened because of sin. It all happened because of disobedience. It all happened because they said, I don't believe God. And they walked forward and they took of that tree and they ate of it. And their eyes were opened. And now we live with the consequence of that death all around us. Have you ever known someone to die? Of course we have. It's not a great end. It is an enemy that Jesus came to crush and defeat and destroy and to make subject his own authority to put an end to it in first corinthians chapter 15 the entire chapter is just filled with amazingly great moments where paul faces us not just with the gruesomeness of death as an enemy but with what christ has done in relationship to it now We're working towards Easter, so I have to be very careful not to give out all the Easter stuff, but 1 Corinthians 15 is full of Easter stuff. It is full of comfort for the believer. It is full of God's truth in dealing with this horrific event that's going to take place to the person next to you one day and the person in front of you and the person behind you. And while it is a terrible moment, and you may feel relief that their suffering is over. It is still not how God has designed it. It is still not how God had put it in place in the garden. Even if it frees someone from the physical suffering that their bodies are enduring, it is terrible the enemy at that moment has said i win now with the believer we're safe with christ our souls are safe with christ for the unbeliever that physical death is just the start of an eternity of pain that they've never experienced before one of the greatest lies in modern culture is the lie that says, he with the most toys at the end wins. Hmm, no, not true. Or the lie, I would rather rule with Satan than serve in heaven. You ever hear that one? Satan's not ruling in hell. Satan is not the one in charge of hell. Satan is its most tormented prisoner. God is still in charge of hell. Satan doesn't run it. The demons don't run it. The fallen angels don't run it. They're prisoners to it. They're facing a torment far greater than you will face if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior. But Paul says, sort of in conclusions in 1 Corinthians 15, and I know it's taken us a long time to get there, but if you're at 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50, Paul says, I declare to you, Brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So, God, so Paul says exactly what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that heaven, eternal life, the kingdom of God isn't of this world. You have to be born again. You can't muster up the power, strength, and resolve and righteousness and holiness to get next to God. There is nothing you can humanly do to make yourself right with God. Nothing. Every religion tries it. Everyone that wants to obey the law tries it, but they fail. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus says you must be born again. And Nicodemus, you know the story goes, how can I, as an old man, go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus goes, how can you, a teacher of the law, not figure this out? I'm not talking physically here, brother. I'm talking spiritually. Spiritually, your soul, your, your spirit, the essence of who you are, needs to be regenerated, reborn, reanimated from death to life. And Paul says exactly the same thing. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. All right? We're all kind of like mysteries. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So Paul says there are some who will never sleep. Now he's not talking physical sleep, right? He's talking spiritually. He's talking death itself. There are some that will never experience death. Because in that moment, at the last trumpet, which is the return of Jesus Christ, some who are still alive simply will be changed into glorified bodies. What that looks like, what that feels like, how we will experience it, I've got no clue. It's never happened to me. It's never happened to anybody that I know. It's going to be a brand new experience for everybody at that moment. Just like death is going to be a brand new experience for each of us when we face it alone. We'll all experience it one time for the first time. Paul says there's going to be a mystery. There's going to be something that happens when Jesus returns. Some of us are not going to be asleep, but we'll all be changed. He says, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So those who were dead will now be in a state of where they can never die again. And scripture tells us that there'll be two resurrections and two groups that are resurrected in that, the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous, who are God's children, who are believers, who are Christians, however you want to look at scripture as defining it, those who are born again will be changed into glorified bodies that will enjoy the physical presence of God forever and ever and ever and ever in the new Jerusalem and in the new heavens and earth. We have lots of descriptions of it, But it's hard to explain because we've never experienced it ourselves. And then there is a second group that get raised. And that resurrection of theirs is not to a party. It's not to a moment of excitement and, oh, wow, joy. It's resurrected so that they would forever experience Whatever the pain and torment of hell is going to be, both spiritually and physically, forever and ever and ever, their bodies will never decay, their nerves will never stop working. They will always be breathing in the atmosphere of the fires of hell. And that quenching, the relief, the hope that there's rescue is gone. I've mentioned it before, I think that's the real real terror of hell, is that there's no hope. No hope. No relief in sight, forever and ever and ever. Paul continues and says about this mystery, For the perishable must change. The parable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So this flesh and blood needs to be changed into a flesh and blood that no longer can die as God intended in the Garden of Eden. How will that change look like? What will it feel like? What will we look like physically? No clue. No idea. Will a baby look different than someone who dies when they're older? I have no idea. I think it's still part of that grand mystery of what the afterlife is going to be all like. But Paul does say that your perishable is going to become imperishable. It's not going to, it's going to change radically. It says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The last enemy is, no longer has an effect on us. That won't take place. That final victory, that final triumphant moment of human history won't take place until Jesus returns and all the dead are raised again. But there's going to be that moment where we can all stand with arms raised high in praises and hallelujahs, declaring that death is swallowed up. It no longer holds us. It no longer is a fear that we face, and our bodies themselves are no longer subject to it. We're raised out of the grave. Our bodies are made imperishable. All that dust, all those ashes, I don't know how God is going to combine all that again into who we are, but we're going to be standing there face to face before the throne of glory, before the great Lamb of God, and we are going to be singing, Holy, Holy, Holy... Lord God Almighty, forever and ever and ever, without the fear of growing frail, without the fear of being incapacitated, without the fear of fear. It's gone. Just as if we had walked in that Garden of Eden in perfect harmony with God, in full obedience, Living our life out as a gardener, a foodie, a zoologist, and someone who wants companionship. And then Paul concludes that chapter by saying, quoting Isaiah and as well as Hosea, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's gone. It's finally defeated. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. It was all because that one do not touch, do not eat, do not eat that tree of knowledge of good and evil. one thing they had to keep on their mind, one law they had to keep. Not 10, one. And they still couldn't keep one. And so death entered our world. And from that moment, it has caused nothing but havoc and heartbreak, sorrow. Pain and tremendous sadness. Verse 57, though, of 1 Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God. What do we have to be thankful for? That's the end? Oh, no, I got time. All right. We'll be thankful for the end soon enough. But thanks be to God. Why? Because he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Only one way to have victory over death. Only one way to have a pleasant, good, blessed outcome to this whole growing old, dying, or tragic death stuff. Only one outcome to it. One way, and that's through victory that Jesus Christ himself has. Because earlier in the chapter, we're told that his death put everything under subject to him. When he died and rose again, he became the master of the grave. He became victorious over Satan. He became victorious over sin and the law and said there is nothing that can separate you now from God if you believe. If you believe that my suffering my death and my resurrection pays for your sin then you are paid in full and you have every promise of the new testament and old testament as yours you are called by my name you inherit what I inherit in fact I call you brothers and sisters of the family of God and then Paul does one last thing in 1 Corinthians 15, the very last verse. Because some of this you could go, these are great things for the future, right? Amen? Resurrection in imperishable bodies where we have joy and everlasting happiness with God. That, that's a good thing. When's that going to happen for us? Who knows? So what do we do in the here and now? So what, what is our take home, Paul? Paul? because these are all things in the future that I can have hope for, I can trust in it, I I can long for it, but what about the here and now? And he says in verse 58, I'll tell you about the here and now. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, all right? Have faith, have confidence, okay? Even though the world looks like it's going to hell, even though culture looks like it's decaying and falling apart, even though it looks like laws are being passed that are contrary to Christ, Stand firm. Okay. Have resolve. Have confidence. Have faith. Have trust. Let nothing move you. Okay. Though heaven and hell itself falls away, we still have our relationship with God. Even though this body deteriorates and family and friends pass away, we still have this relationship with God. Stand firm. Don't compromise on that. It's real, it's in the here and now. And then he says, always, that's the here and now, today, always, give yourselves full to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You know what Paul basically says at the very end of all of this talk about heaven and hell and resurrection and death and life and imperishable? He says, you gotta work. 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 Work at what, Paul? Everything that the Lord is giving you to do, work. Okay. So, I keep volunteering. Yes, you keep volunteering. I keep praying. Yes, you keep praying. I keep serving. Yes, you keep serving. You mean I got to keep giving? Yes, keep giving. I got to keep loving? You got to keep loving. You mean I got to keep forgiving? You keep forgiving i got to keep having mercy? Keep having mercy. God wants us to keep on living like Christ. So death does not stop us and we do not give up and say, forget it, I can't go on anymore. No. In the face of death, we say, Lord, I need to stick to it. I need to keep on doing what you've given me to do. So you may have moments in your life, in the past or in the future, where death enters in at an unexpected moment and hurts you. It hurts you. Not your death, but the death of someone else. It may hurt you deeply. Paul's answer, God's answer, to that sorrow of death is not to sit at home and feel sorry for yourself. Other people have gone through exactly what you're going through. That's no different in human experience. God didn't design it that way, but we're dealing with it. But what he is asking you to do is to stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop living in that sadness. Stop living in that, oh, woe is me, and live for him. Serve for him. I think one of the greatest ways of getting out of that funk is to sign up and volunteer and serve others. When you sign up and you start serving others, the focus is off of you. And the focus is back on him and others. And that gets us back to the two greatest commandments. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Serve him and serve others. Let's pray. And why don't you stand? Stretch your feet. Father, as hard as it is at times to, I know we say it, talk about real tough and sometimes dark things, we know, Lord, that you don't leave us there. You don't leave us in the dark. You don't leave us with the heaviness of grief. You allow us to continue to serve you and serve others in a way that demonstrates that we stand firm in the faith. Lord, help the weakness of our faith. Help the sadness in our heart. Help the pain and sorrow of our loss. So that we might live and work for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said...